Hello and welcome back to Business of Film, a crafttruck.com podcast. My name is Jesse Eichmann and you're listening to our New Year's Eve special. Kind of cool. All right. This is episode number 10. We're here with Andrew Vandehooten, producer of All Cheerleaders Die. It was kind of a hit this year at the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, Midnight Madness, Colin Gettys, just an awesome time. So, uh, Andrew gets into that and more on this episode, so we're very lucky to have him here. Before we move on to the show, however, just a little bit of housekeeping. If you've been listening to the last couple episodes, then you know that Business of Film has a new home. It's got its own feed. So, in the new year, which I guess will be the next episode, we will no longer be here. We will no longer be on the crafttruck.com feed, so you'll have to go back into iTunes, back into Stitcher, wherever you've been listening to this, just type in either Craft Truck or Business of Film, uh, and you'll see our logo. It'll come up, and just subscribe to that separately. So if you want to continue listening to our uncut audio interviews with our cinematographers and editors from our Through the Lens and In the Cut series, don't go anywhere. Just stay put, and uh, they'll continue to come to you on this feed here. So Happy New Year, everybody, and... Uh, we're looking forward to 2014. It's going to be a good one. On with the show. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here with you on your podcast. Ah, well, that's that's awesome. We're looking forward to, you know, diving into some of the, the good stuff today. Maybe you can just take a minute and introduce yourself to our audience. Tell tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, your background, how you, how you got started in this business. Well, I was... Um I was exploited as a child uh, doing commercials and uh, miserable. I decided to quit the industry at the age of four and a half, uh, only to be seduced and lured back into the insanity of entertainment uh, years later um, in my teens. And then as a teenager, I was doing commercials and some stuff for Nickelodeon uh, in front of the camera, which is fun. And then I kind of decided to take a, a shot at doing stand-up comedy. And having done stand-up comedy for, for four years as a teenage comic in New York City, I realized that my life wasn't miserable enough and my situation wasn't minor enough that uh, I really couldn't, uh, I couldn't justify telling terrible jokes and cussing on stage in front of people from Long Island and New Jersey trying to... Um, you know, garner um, garner some kind of a you know <laughs> some kind of a break um, in that world. I, I don't know. I think I think comedy was fun, but it was it was definitely something that uh, for me um, was more a an outlet for all the energy I had at the time. And I didn't really want to do school plays. I didn't really want to do. Um, you know, too much theater, even though I was in New York. But I, I love the idea of stand-up comedy, and then of course that segued into doing some commercials. And I booked a few independent films, which was cool as an actor. And finally, I went to film school in Boston at Emerson College, where I realized very quickly that uh, I had a skill of, of really networking people together and putting people together, and that's where I started to make films. And so, making movies in college, I uh, I kind of you know fell in love with the medium and and found myself directing, and I actually you know continued doing some acting early on as a freshman. Uh, 
you know, at, at Emerson College, but doing local films and commercials in Boston. And then I found my way, um, you know, into producing and directing. And, and it was just, uh, you know, kind of an interesting journey for me in that I, in many ways, have made so many movies now, 14 films, that, you know, out of college, you know, I moved home and, and lived at home. And I was able to kind of just take that journey, you know, out of film school and, and really connect the dots doing short films, which soon led me to doing features. So I haven't really had to do, I weighed a lot of tables uh, in college. I did a lot of um, work in restaurants and even, you know, the first couple of years or a year out of college, I was doing that. And then I lived at home while I made these short films and, and then I raised money to make features and made enough with the first feature, um, raised enough with doing the first feature and kept enough investors interested to come continue on to doing a second film. So we did Headspace, then Girl Next Door. Um, and then over the years, just been kind of running on water, making these indie films and, and continuing to do it. And in the last few years, I feel like we've really continued to, to you know, make some really, really good headway. I think The Woman was a wonderful turning point for our company. And and then, uh, you know, well, now... Let me just let me stop you right there. Just uh, before we move on to, to some of the stuff that you're working on now, let me go back to the days of, of doing short films and film school for just a second. What would you say, in your opinion, was the value of doing all those short films? Do you think doing all those short films was uh, a, a good route for you to have taken? Or looking back on your career, would you say that, you know what, I should have just dove into doing features earlier on? I'm curious to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you dive into doing features, you're pretty much setting yourself up for failure. I, I think if you can learn or force yourself to have to tell a story in two minutes or under... And this generation, I mean, everything's about YouTube and, and, you know, everything's about the Internet and how quickly you can convey an idea and keep people's attention spans, which are becoming more and more limited by the second. So I think the great thing about short films, again, is that it forces you to have to tell a story in a very, you know, uh, very limited period of time. And then ultimately, you know, it's a great way to learn um, how to, you know, to, to deal with a beginning, middle and end in a very short Period. So I don't know. Yeah, I think I think the other the benefit about doing shorts is you get to learn about you know what a film set is like. I mean, until you do a feature, of course, you don't really get the full on experience of of you know what it means to be with a crew for thirty days or twenty days or you know you know having that kind of camaraderie. But there's still the camaraderie there on a short film. I think to be able to have a full on you know I think a three to four day short film shoot or week long short film shoot at most you know, with a real crew gives you the opportunity to really understand the different roles involved and, and make mistakes. I mean, without having it cost you hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Right. And so after having gotten all these, these shorts under your belt, then just, just describe the process of, of what, first of all, what was the first feature that you would say was like the, your, your first quote unquote real feature? Wh- which one was that? And can you describe the process of getting that off the ground and making that transition between doing, you know, shorts and doing features? It's a good question. I mean, I, I, I suppose I would consider Alma Mater a film I did. It was initially called, originally called The Living Room Waltz. It was directed by a guy named Hans Canoza who went on to do a film called Conversations with uh, Other Women uh, with Aaron Eckhart. Um, I, I suppose his first feature, because he was a Harvard grad and I was going to Emerson in Boston and I got cast as the lead in the film. But then I came on as an associate producer and helped them raise some money and, you know, I helped them finish the movie. But, uh, I, you know, that was kind of my first experience. 
Um, but going out and making my first feature that I directed that was full on 100%, you know, something that I wanted to do was doing Headspace. And, and that was absolutely a learning experience. Had to, you know, pitch 49 plus people and had 49 plus investors on that film. So it was exhausting, man. It was a lot of work and we didn't have enough money to shoot the whole film, which was ultimately, I think a 45 day shoot or something ridiculous like that for a first feature and shot in New York city. 45 days for a first feature. Was that by design or by accident? I'm just curious. Yeah, it was pretty much, you know, just the naive nature of like jumping into something much larger than I probably should have done for my first film. And we had a hundred grand and then slowly, you know, we shot the first 10 days with a hundred thousand and shot out some of the name actors. And I was able to raise more money to shoot another couple weeks then raise more money to shoot another couple weeks. Finally, four segments of shooting, you know, we had a feature and, uh, I don't think I would do a, a first movie like that ever again. But again, like you know, I no, said, it's, good. it's funny though that, that that you should say. Uh, sorry to cut you off there, but it's it's really interesting what you're talking about there, which is that you you shot a bit, then you went out, raised more money, shot a bit more, raised a little bit more money, and just one of the guys obviously that we follow uh, certainly here at Craft Truck is Ted Hope. And he's been talking about for, I don't know, years now, or at least the last couple of years, the idea of staged investors and doing things in chunks, just the way you're, you, you did that. You're, so you're almost, you're almost ahead of the game in a way. Like the fact that you did that is maybe the way people should be doing it in the future. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to availability and how much risk you want to take. I mean, the moment you start breaking a project up, there's so many variables as it is when you make a project that can lead to failure that the moment you start splitting segments like that, you really set yourself up for more opportunity to not have the film get complete. Right. And so... Unless you're really doing it like we did on Headspace, thankfully we could shoot out, you know, there was probably about two or three main actors that needed to be there. Really one actor, Chris Denham, had to be there for all four segments. But, you know, in that case it worked well because Chris was committed, so I knew... You know, I discussed it with him before we started shooting, so he kind of knew that it was kind of nuts that we didn't have all the money and we're going to just roll the dice. Now, do do you find it hard to be a producer director? Do you do you work with another producer, or are you? I mean, a lot of the stuff that you're directing, you're obviously producing. And do you now think of yourself more as just a straight up producer, or do you do you, do you like to be behind the director's chair as well? You know, I think directing is a, is a challenge in that you have enough to worry about as a director that if you throw the producing hat on in terms of, you know, more than the credit actually doing the work during production as a producer, you're really putting yourself at odds. And so I, I, I personally love directing, but if I direct a, you know, when I direct in my next film, it'll be with uh, a dedicated producer during the times that I'm directing. And I will not want to discuss producerial questions when I'm directing, I want to discuss, I mean, look, there's always crossover. I mean, it's kind of on low budget. A good director has to know how to, you know, use their resources, albeit limited at times. And so there is crossover, but you know, a director doesn't want to have to think about, you know, below the line management or, 
you know, discussing certain things with the line producer and, and dealing with the budget. When they're shooting, they just want to direct the movie. So, so yeah, I mean, for me, I'd love to direct down the line and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, not have to worry about it. And as a producer, when I produce, I don't want to think about directing. I want to focus on producing it. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's really creative in different ways. And it's also very rewarding to see the, you know, the machine kind of be there to help build the machine and then serve the crew and serve the project and really serve the director as a producer. I mean, there's something very fulfilling about that. Now, what do you look for in the projects that you undertake? I mean, as you said before, you've, you, you've produced quite a number of features and uh, at least it looks like one a year for the last six or seven years. Uh, what do you look, what do you look for in a project and, you know, how do you go about being so consistent? I, I mean, that's, uh, that's quite a remarkable thing and an amazing achievement to just be, you know, banging out projects, you know, once a year or more. Uh, so I just, if, if you could talk a little, little bit about sort of that process of, you know, coming in, coming into one project and then out of it and then into another one and sort of how you keep that going, uh, I'd love to hear. Well, you have to be, you know, I like to think I'm good at what I do. Um, you know, I, I make a good product. I make a consistent film. I mean, there's a certain look to the films we make. I give a lot of creative freedom to my directors, and I, I give my actors a lot of freedom to play and with their directors as well. And I really do like working with cinematographers who want to push the envelope. So I think it comes down to the energy around a project that keeps it going. I mean, I think it's been 10 years actually since 2005. I feel like we've made one to two features every year. So, um, and I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in getting to a place in my life where I really want to even do more content, but I want to do it differently. Um, cause there's so many people I wish I could be associated with or be working with or guiding, um, as a producer, maybe as an executive producer or some kind of an executive, that could be interesting. Um, again, when I go back into the creative, creative world, I want to do it solely as a director where I don't have to think about all those other roles. But the answer to your question is to be in love. I said this once before. I'm in love with what I do. I love making movies. I love the process. I love the people. I love everything about it, the beginning, middle, and end, and, and you know, there's so many moments throughout the process that are re- rewarding. And to that end, there's so many re- moments throughout the process that are painstakingly difficult and challenging. And I don't think there's any other industry in the world where you can bring so many different kinds of people together for such a short period of time and get to know them so well in such a short period of time and accomplish something that is going to potentially be viewed and recognized by millions of people after the project's over, I, I, there's something exciting about that, and there's something to love about that. Definitely, and uh, when it comes to your selection of, of projects, like you said, you have a certain, I guess, aesthetic and tone to the projects that you make. How how would you characterize how would you characterize your projects? If you were to stick like a brand on, these are the kind of projects that I've made. Not not necessarily what you want to make in the future, but to this point in your career, how would you characterize your brand for lack of a better word i don't know man I, that, that's a tough question I, I don't really like labeling my own work necessarily because i think there's enough diversity within the work i've done that it it should hopefully speak for itself do you uh, do you 
confer with, uh, quote unquote, the market before you make a movie or are you kind of riding on gut? Are you, are you checking in with sales companies or distributors or some of your other colleagues to see, you know, is this a project that's going to work well in the marketplace? Uh, how do you get a sense for, you know, is this, is this going to work? Is this going to sell? Am I going to get it to an audience? What's your kind of process on that front? I mean, information is always helpful and it's always a useful thing, but I think, you know, and I think, I think there's no question there's a marketplace that's constantly shifting and, I mean, you know, I guess shark movies are pretty hot right now, right? With Sharknado, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, like, you know, it, it, the moment you start thinking of film and, and movies more as a commodity and less of an art form, I think there's a real, you know, there's a real, you can compromise yourself. Um, there's something fun about the fluidity and, and the risk and excitement of taking a chance on a true idea that somebody believes in versus kind of scouting it out. But I mean, to some degree, I, I, you know, again, to answer your question, I think projects that I'm questionable, questionable about that I don't feel that immediate draw to, I'll go out and I'll test it with more of the marketplace where a product like jug face, where I read the script and I'm like, it speaks to me. I'm not going to really kowtow and need to do research group on it. I can kind of just move forward with my gut and make it happen. So I think, I think they're projects I'm more careful with now where, you know, I'm associating myself as a producer, but not necessarily putting all the financing together. And then I really want to make sure that I'm helping, you know, helping develop and push the project to, you know, through those means more so. I, you know, it's a really tough question. Again, I mean, objectifying something that's an art form is, is difficult because every idea is so unique and individual and one person's opinion can vary so much from another person's opinion. I, I suppose if you look at the Jason Blum model, there is a way to make movies that are commercial and viable. And, and in his case, multi-million and now a billion dollars worth of, of success in, in receipts. But but again, I think what has been awesome about our films, and now you're kind of pigeon getting me to answer your first question without me really wanting to answer it, is that our films are very, very raw and there's a scrappiness to them. And you wouldn't necessarily know that, you know, without, you know, experiencing the process that we go through doing it, doing them. I mean, they have a gloss finish to them. There's a unique look and strong look and feel to them. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that answers your question in a strange roundabout way. <laughs> no, no, I, I think actually uh, the it's a great answer, and I, you know, I love the fact that you guys approach it more as an art form than as a commodity, and that if you're, you know, if the art can fit inside the business, then all the better. Um, the women, because you said that that project was a turning point for you. Um, what was the if you were to sort of give us. Uh, a little bit of a history on how the women came together and sort of take me through the process of, of, of that film. Um, how did it come together? Why was that a turning point for you? And what did that do for your career? The woman was a, an interesting collaboration between Jack Ketchum, Lucky McKee and myself in that it was inspired really as a, continuation of Offspring, which I had directed based on the Jack Ketchum novel written by Jack Ketchum for the screen as well. And the character of the woman was one of which I felt very compelled and and moved by. She jumped off the screen to me and there was something more 
with her that needed to be explored, I felt. And in feeling that way, I had Lucky McKee fly to New York, and I flew him in, and we discussed at length kind of what the possibilities would be of continuing the storyline. And, and that was with Jack Ketchum, Lucky, and myself. We had those conversations, and and I felt Lucky really had a grasp of kind of which direction I was trying to go with the story, or not necessarily the story, more than the exploration of, of what's going on within her mind. And, you know, I think he really uncovered where I, where I failed to really explore that character in its depth. He kind of saw how to do that. And, and I wouldn't call it a failure more than it just wasn't the focus of what that first movie offspring was, you know, although watching the woman, I feel, you know, I feel that the film is, is just so interesting and so, out there and, and original and incredibly, um, you know, just incredibly uh, mixed as far as the the tonal shifts throughout the project. It's a pretty bizarre movie, and 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 for that reason, I think the woman is very much a piece of art. I, I really dig it. I, I, I'm very proud of it, and I think it was the perfect blend. And, and the reason I state that as kind of a turning point is because it was something that originated between Ketchum, McKee, and myself. And it kind of derived there and found its way into more of a commercial marketplace. I think it was the first example of something that we kind of we kind of built within our wheelhouse that that reached a larger audience and had much more critical success than many of our earlier films. I mean, I think our second film out of the gate was Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door in the storyline and the subject matter was so taboo and so edgy and, and just crazy that when we even just pulled that film off, it got a ridiculous amount of attention and did, it continues to do very well for the company. But, um, but the woman was something that I think was a little bit more entertaining and a little more, um, fantasy based, obviously, or, you know, it's, it's, um, the kind of movie that really, really triggered the, the way to approach doing films moving forward, which is let's find directors that really have stronger opinions or, you know, um, ideas of how to tell a story and give them the freedom to develop it and work on it from the script stage moving forward. And I think if you can do that, you know, you really, really find a signature on these projects far more than if you don't. And again, I think um, The Woman was kind of the first collaboration that did that. And out of curiosity, what did you shoot uh, the project on? What, what kind of camera? What kind of setup? What, like, did you have a big team for that? What was your, you know, your you know, your, your crew and the, the support that you had to do that movie. Well, if you go to YouTube and you type in the behind the scenes for the woman uh, or go to the modern cine YouTube page, you can watch us making the project and you can see how it was done. Um, it's probably more interesting watching that than me sitting here and describing it. But in short, the crew is probably maybe 30 to 50 people. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just a, a good group of kids and we all came together and had a blast and we shot it on a Sony HD cam as our type of camera. So that's great. Well, uh, in, if you're listening to this, we will put, a uh, in the show notes links to, uh, to that. So you guys can watch that. Uh, and I guess just, uh, I, I gotta say, because moving forward right now to the project that you're currently working on, um, I haven't seen it. All cheerleaders die, but I, I love the concept. The, the trailer looks awesome. Um, the artwork, lo- the artwork looks phenomenal. Um, I, I, I want to hear the story of all cheerleaders die. Um, because to me that, that's just, it just looks like an amazing movie, just a total fun movie. So, um, can you, 
tell me what you can about the film. How did it come together just to start? Well, it was a continuation of my relationship, creative relationship with Lucky in terms of playing around with, you know, hey, I, you know, I love the woman. I love what you did with it. And he and I seemed to click creatively and, and also was somebody I could produce very comfortably for. And so I felt giving him another opportunity, whereas he had done the woman really kind of on my instinct and, and drive an initiative, um, you know, pushing that, you know, to get him to come on board. He kind of suggested this project he had done out of college called All Cheerleaders Die. And so he said he wanted to remake it. And he suggested that he collaborate with Chris Severton, his longtime buddy from college and, you know, co co filmmaker on the first project. And so I said, sure, let's do it. And so it was that simple. I mean, you know, I, I, I liked the work we did earlier and I wanted to continue the relationship and give him as much freedom to create the, the remake in a world with more resources and, and certainly more uh, time than the first movie. Um, he had to make the, make the first movie. So that's kind of how it came together. And uh, how did you go about putting the, uh, I guess, the financing together on that movie? I um, I dressed up in a really really good looking dress actually, and would hang out on the Lower East Side and, and uh, dressed like a cheerleader. And you know, I would just do cheers on the corner, and and if people liked them, they would just put money into a box. Really, it was kind of crazy. So I raised enough money. I raised probably about a thousand dollars doing these cheers kind of in drag, and it was kind of I don't even call it drag. It was just a different character, really. And then I found my way. You know, online, we went online to this Kickstarter type site and, you know, I was able to just keep raising money through this, this cheerleader character that I had formulated. So <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, and the, uh, I noticed that it, it's made a couple sales already that it seems, you know, uh, it's, it's coming. What, what, when's the movie coming out now? Um, so the movie comes out in the springtime and it's going to come out. Image Entertainment's going to put it out. Yeah. Uh, um, we're just waiting on the specific release uh, dates that might get pushed a little bit, depending on uh, a couple things, but we're just waiting to see, uh, you know, specifically, and it'll be coming out in a bunch of different countries all over the world as well, which is exciting. And, um, you know, yeah, we're looking forward to, uh, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a good one. I think I think it entertains. It's the most entertaining film we've made. It's probably the most acceptable film, you know, for a larger audience that we've made. I mean, I, you know, when I say acceptable, a lot of a lot of times the films we make are so disturbing that, you know, I don't think they have the opportunity to kind of go beyond a certain amount of people or a certain audience. So this film certainly isn't limited in that regard. Did you know that going in or was that your hope for it um, when you when you started the project? Well, people would give me money when I was on the corner in Lower East Side, and they told me they thought, thought that this, this idea of me and drag really would translate well with actual women dressed as cheerleaders. And so I was you know, probably better off not playing any of the parts in the film than the way we went with it. And, and people seem to be responding pretty well to it. You know, Although for Halloween I did dress up like a cheerleader again, and I think I scared a few people off. Yeah, it was a good decision that I opened it up to a larger audience, I think. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it, you did start your career in acting. So, you know, I mean, hey, it, there was you know, definitely an opportunity for you to take a role in that movie. And, you know, I guess it was better, you know, for it in the end. Um, but I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. I mean, it looks like it's a total fun movie and, and, and definitely, you know, one that people can bite their teeth into. So um, just going, okay, so, so, so going back to 
Because I, I noticed there was a lot of, uh, there seems to be a lot of connection between, I guess, friends that you made in film school and relationships that you developed along the way. Uh, do you have, you know, a, a kind of a, I guess you could say a, a team of people now that, that you rely on sort of, you know, for each, for each project that you, that you go to, do, do you have like your, your go-to team that you, that you bring from one project to the next? I do have a lot of people that I continue to work with over time. I've been very fortunate to meet a handful of folks um, that I click with. And I would say there's kind of like, you know, one guy who does a lot of sound stuff, Andrew Smedic, who I love to work with now regularly. I, I like to work with a guy named Zach Passero, who's edited a bunch of movies and done some visual effects, as, as well as some... Um, a lot of titles on projects that we've done. Um, he's very talented guys, both of these guys. And, you know, and I met both of, I met Andrew through Offspring in Michigan and I met Zach through Lucky. Um, and, and then there's, you know, I mean, I've collaborated with all kinds of below the line guys that I'm really, guys and gals that I'm a big fan of. I find people that I trust that get excited about what I get excited about and I try to keep them around as often as I can. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, how do you build an enthusiastic team that's going to support, you know, the creative energy on a lower budget? I mean, you know, we've got to find the right people. And most of these people do appreciate it when I dress up, by the way, uh, like a cheerleader. <laughs> um, so f- festivals, where do you sort of fit in the whole, you know, how much do you rely on or 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 let me rephrase the question. How important do you think festivals are to the success of the kinds of movies that you make? Oh, I mean, they're vital. I mean, without the festival circuit in the genre that exists right now, I feel like the films would be incredibly limited. Many films wouldn't even have a home or distribution because so many films kind of find their life in the festival circuit. Fortunately for us, our films start there. They don't end there. But... um, but yeah, I think I think wonderful champions of our films have been people like Mitch Davis up at Fantasia. He really helped push home movie to another level, which helped escalate the kind of cachet for the film. And IFC then picked it up, and Anchor Bay picked it up for Canada. Uh, Hello, Andrew. I think we might have lost. There's something wrong with the Skype here. Uh, so I'm going to give you my best radio voice, and. See what's going on. You can hear me calling. Hey, Andrew. Hi. So, what what was the last thing you heard? Because I was discussing festivals. Uh, it was festivals. It was uh, Mitch over at Fantasia. Oh, wonderful. Yes. So certain people like Mitch Davis, who've been real champions of films we've made over the years, have been vital to the success of our brand and and, and certain films such as Home Movie, which was really elevated by the cachet of Fantasia, which led to us getting distribution in the U.S. with IFC. And furthermore, Anchor Bay picked it up in Canada. Um, Our friends up at Anchor Bay over there in Canada, uh, Susan Curran and Rob and... um, uh, I believe it was George. I think was that his name? Oh my God, Gary was it? Maybe I think it was a guy who used to run the Anchor Bay office. Nice older gentleman, kind of a relic from the video days, and was hugely supportive of everything we were doing. So festivals kind of are a place for us to start. Thankfully, not end with our films. Um, although for a lot of movies that are independent, they're kind of the place where the films have their life. Um, 
we get a lot of great reviews. Scott Weinberg has seen our films, you know, such like like Funeral Kings, and he saw that down at South by Southwest, and all the reviews we got through that kind of exposure were fabulous in terms of positioning the film for release and also helping it get distribution. Um, you know, films uh, festivals like Sundance were great platforms. Films like The Woman, uh, Toronto was a wonderful platform. Midnight Madness. Canada's own, your very own legendary spot for genre pictures, Midnight Madness with the one, the only Colin Geddes, who I'm a huge, huge fan of. Colin's kind of funny. He's one of these kinds of guys who literally would say, hey man, your films are good, man. I like what you're doing. Keep it going. But nothing you've made is right so far. And like, I literally sent him probably 10, 12 movies of ours over the years. And finally, we send him All Cheerleaders Die. And he's like, not only do I want to take the film, and then you know, a few months later, he's like, we want to make it the opening film for Midnight Madness 2013. And lucky Chris and I applauded and, and were so excited. And and so that was cool, man. It was, it was really, it was motivating. And, you know, it's like I feel the last few years, like I said, since The Woman, I feel like we keep stepping it up to another level. That being said, you know, I, I don't think you can ever get comfortable. Um, and, and you know, as a creative person, I want to, I got to keep creating. So there's no surefire thing in this business. You got to just keep pushing forward. And the successes you have, you have to take them um, and, and really, really, uh, you know, enjoy them in the moments that you have them. Never take them for granted. And then, you know, be as smart as you can stepping out, you know, moving forward. So when you had Cheerleaders Die, Gets Into Midnight Madness, did you come into the festival with any deals in place, either your uh, your image deal or uh, a deal in Canada or anywhere else in the world, or did you come into the festival with the world all uh, open, no territory sold? Which just uh, How did that play out? Well, my booking agent at the time was really excited about me doing you know, Elvis covers, so I was like down to do it. Um, had a bunch of dates set up kind of when I came up to Toronto, but then kind of overshadowed by the film festival, the booking agent kind of said that, you know, it's probably not the best time for me to be doing this cheerleading Elvis Presley, you know, routine. So I kind of stepped back and, you know, I decided to actually promote the the movie All Cheerleaders Die, which we had made, um, which was probably a good decision, you know, because there was really no one else doing the job except for for me going into it and, and paradigm, I got this agency paradigm to co-rep it with me. Um, so it was more successful promoting that film than probably having taken on the the gigs, singing the Elvis Presley songs that I so dearly love. But, um, you know, it is what it is. You gotta, you gotta make your decisions in life. And I think I made the right decision that time around. Awesome. Awesome. Um, people like Fisher Stevens do much more convincing Elvis Presley impersonation than I do. I I don't even know. Should I ask you for your Elvis Presley impersonation? I I don't know if that would fly. I I, I know mine sucks, so uh, you know uh, I, I won't ask. That probably be better for both for the both of us. Um, so that's great. So you uh, so you you're out of Toronto, um, and did you have your next project in mind uh, when you were when you were already when you were doing All Cheerleaders Die? Uh, did you have your next one sort of, you know, like script in hand, ready to go? Like, I guess you, cause you probably came into the festival thinking, you know, this could do really well. Were you trying to capitalize <laughs> on the opportunity? 
Uh, it's funny. Uh, I'm such. Are you ask? You're asking me if I'm a whore, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm not asking if you are. Not, not, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I, 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 listen to me. I'm fair. a man whore. I, of course, I had 17 scripts strapped to my waist, and I was there with a huge box again, begging on the corners and Bloor Street, asking people to give me dollars to make my next project. It was fantabulous. Um, I, no, I, I, I totally had gotten the advice over the years to like eat a lot of poutine and drink lots of Molson beer when I went up there and not focus on anything else but having a damn good time celebrating cheerleaders. I was so focused on selling that movie. Like I always have like 10, 15 projects ready to roll that I want to make, you know, so I can have a really good conversation about things I want to do. But all of my energy really was focused around all cheerleaders die at the time. That's great. Um, That's great. Yeah. I mean, look, like, you know, when you go out and make a movie, you got to be present with that project. And, and, you know, I'm a guy who takes probably about five to 10 meetings every couple of weeks with different people pitching me projects, writers, and it's kind of become the, you know, I call it the, the breakfast club because literally I sit there, I have breakfast in my neighborhood before my workday with people. And I don't say a word, which for me is difficult at times. And I literally sit there and I listen to people pitch me stories and ideas. And, You'd be surprised at how many people, you know, have 20,000 projects that they're excited about, but they're not focused on one of them. And I think that that's the problem with a lot of creative people who are trying to get independent films made is that they can't seem to focus on that one project that that is so personal and important to them that it kind of like, you know, set off the spark. And for me, I want to feel that spark and see that spark. So when I'm being pitched like multiple projects by someone, you know, I start feeling like I'm a studio executive. I'm like, check, pass, check, fail, you know, pass, fail. Well, this is actually an interesting question because you're a guy who takes a lot of pitches. You speak to a lot of creative people. You hear a lot of things that either work or doesn't work in the pitch. If you were to tell me, you know, one of the two, one of the, what are the few things to you that, you know, that, that makes a good pitch, what are, or better yet, what are people doing wrong in their pitches that you're like, damn, like this, this could be a good thing, but you know, they don't know, uh, they don't know how to do whatever it is. I'm just curious, you know, in your right, mind, so, so I have a good answer for yeah, that. Yeah. You know, there, recently I was pitched a project that interestingly enough, I'm probably, you know, I'm probably going to be involved in making, and I won't say the name of the project, um, has, you know, but anyway, the point of it was this pitch went on for about 45 minutes. And usually if someone pitches me, I'd like the whole story to be told to me within, I'd like to know what the movie is about within 30 seconds to a minute. And if they can, within 30 seconds to a minute, convey what their movie is about, then I'm going to start asking questions at which I hope they'll be able to answer those concisely as well. And they can expound kind of driven on a, on a collaborative or more of a, um, you know, a back and forth kind of conversation versus a, you know, a monologue. Cause the worst pitch is a monologue pitch where somebody literally, as they're telling your story, their story, they're getting caught up in details that are really not that important, but you know, certain, so this particular pitch, it was guy who I really, you know, could tell he was, you know, inexperienced at pitching projects, but at the same note, he had a certain level of passion and enjoyment for his own project that it was kind of contagious to sit there and entertaining to sit there and watch him unfold his script in front of me for 45 minutes. I mean, I, I literally could have probably staged a reading 
by the end of this pitch and, and seen the whole screenplay performed live. But I, I have to say it was it was entertaining and, you know, his passion came through and it was probably one of the most rare situations where I would let someone continue on that long and not be like, hey, my wife's at home, I've got to go home and cook dinner or, you know, or, um, you know, got to get out of here, you know. So it was, it was a bizarre situation and, and uh, you know, yeah, man, don't do that. <laughs> this guy got lucky, but don't do that. That is not what you do. Right. I, that's a uh, honestly great answer. Uh, and um, that's awesome. That's awesome advice. Um, so, I'd rather have you go to me when I sit down and I say, which what movie do you want to make? And then the next question I'm going to ask you is what movie do you need to make? And hopefully the movie you want to make is the same movie you need to make. If you say, I don't really need to make that film. I have another one too, you know, that I'm thinking about as well. You know, then I'm starting to think immediately, ah, you know, this is somebody with 3 million ideas that doesn't know what, which idea is their best idea or, you know, they're trying, I hate when I'm being like, they see me as a horror guy and a lot of you see me as a horror guy and they come into the pitch and the first thing they're doing is pitching me a horror film out of the gate. And for me, you know, I'd rather have you pitch me a romance or, or a drama or something outside of the genre and then find our way into the genre. Um, you know, you know, if you're passionate about something else, don't just come up with a genre pitch and pitch me that day. If you really, you know, want to make a comedy, pitch me on a comedy. I mean, I'm open to making any kind of movie. I hate being pigeonholed. So, and and 99% of the time when I'm pitched a horror movie, it's a pass just because, you know, it feels contrived. Um, Right. Um, Andrew, did I lose you again? Are you still there? I'm here. Oh, okay, awesome. Sorry, uh, I thought the uh, the thing cut out. Okay, so just as we're getting to the end here of our time, I, I do like to just talk a little bit about social media and how important that is to producers. So uh, I'm interested to get your take. Where where do you kind of sit on the the whole social media spectrum? Do you do you, do you dive into that stuff? Do you do you use it to help promote your movies? What are your sort of thoughts on the the world we live in, in in the social spaces jesse i think i think without social media as an independent filmmaker you're pretty much dead in the water these days so i stand very much on the side of promoting as much as you can using new technology one of my big focuses going into 2014 is a new internet startup company that is completely about developing uh, the relationship around social media with creative people and driving projects through that process. And so I think you're going to see something really exciting that will kind of expose my my belief in, in that kind of method of methodology of creation. So uh, I, you, You've got my interest peaked, but I, 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 it sounds like you're a little early in the process to let the cat out of the bag. Give me, give me. Uh, are you going to be at South by Southwest this year? Won't be there, but uh, but when it is ready, you'll have to shoot us a line so that we can uh, connect our audience to whatever you have cooking up. Because uh, I, I I like this. I love I love the sound actually. What you're talking about, which is interesting. I mean, do you do you use do you try and utilize any of the? Uh, I mean, for for any of your films, were you were you trying to build momentum for them uh, in advance of the screenings that, or in, you know, in advance? Of the oh festivals? yeah, oh yeah. 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 yeah, and we did a bunch of on Jugface. We were hitting up social networks so early on and really pushing virally on the internet, and it made a huge difference for that movie. You know, I think I think one of the most exciting things to me is about 
the idea about many people being able to connect and being able to share the magic of what we do. And it takes executors, people who know how to get the execution, the process executed and done in a certain way. You know, one may say that without curation, they're in this crazy cluttered marketplace. No one would know what movies to watch. And I think in a world where we're filled with the abundant content all day long, 24 seven from many different avenues, it takes curation to really allow certain stories and certain films to find their audience and be able to be discovered. And so the way I kind of view social media is it's kind of preliminary curation, right? Cause we're really finding the interests of the people that we're connecting with at an early stage. And then we're being able to, take them on a ride and on a journey from, from an early stage. And if you think about it, it's like the idea of inertia. You know, once you build up enough steam, you know, you're going to keep moving forward. And I think, I think very much filmmaking is like that. And I think, I think money is found very kind of magnetically in that regard as well. I mean, you know, you kind of want to be on something that's going somewhere, a part of something that's going somewhere versus being part of something that could just, end up being one person's failed dream. And so again, I think a lot of what I'm focusing on is how do we how do we connect people not only from certain interest bases but also different backgrounds and and universally different different cultural backgrounds but also different locations. You know, how do we bring these people together in a way that really really can congeal with an exciting new process. And that's, that's what I'm focused on. And so even with the films that I do more traditionally, which are studio driven versus kind of user driven, I think I, I enjoy incorporating social media as much as I can, where I can. We have all these, these people who are kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, representatives of our work because they're fans of our work and they blast it out to all of their groups of friends and fans. So it's, it's, it's very much a, uh, it's an important thing uh, to use the web and to capitalize on it. But I think, I think a lot of arrogance exists within kind of traditional means of content and in the way that content gets made. I think there's so much focus on, you know, on the auteur or the studio um, being in the driver's seat. I think there's a real issue with that, um, you know, and I think that a lot of the answers for how that's going to be resolved are on, you know, are going to come through the internet. Just kind of like the way that, um, you know, the way we communicate now. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little frenetic and insane at times, but, but it's certainly, it's, it, you now as an individual in your home, whether you like it or not, if you use the internet, you're going to know more about people's lives and what's going on within their lives than before the internet. When the newspapers existed, your scope was so narrow and everything was so, um, you know, I mean, you were limited to kind of what you're subscribing to and you were limited to um, a certain amount of content. And now it's just everything's there at the tip of your fingertips. So anyway... Andrew, I want to thank you for coming on the show and for sh- uh, and for sharing some of your thoughts. Uh, we appreciate you being here today. Cool, man. I hope I didn't bore you with that last rant. But no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's actually there's a lot of great stuff here. I hope uh, 
everybody who's listened, you know, has a few takeaways for themselves. And if if somebody wants to connect with uh, with your company because they've got a good idea, how do you, how would you encourage people to get in touch with you? I think the best way to reach out is to go email us at info at modern and find us, uh, make, you know, friend us up on our Twitter at modern at modern cine. And then also you can find us on Facebook, um, modern cine there as well. And, uh, you know, I'm super excited about the opportunity, obviously, uh, you know, meeting you over this podcast and, and again, getting to speak to you and, and, you know, talk about all this stuff is exciting. I think, I think the future for content creation and the opportunities are, are going to be much greater now. So I'm excited to see kind of, you know, what the filmmakers of the next uh, 10 years are going to be like. It's going to be fun. Well, you're a part of that generation. So we're, we're, we're excited to see. All Cheerleaders Die coming out sometime in 2014. Yep. All right, man. Well, thank you so much again. Take care, Jesse.